Hey everybody, welcome to another week in the week in film tech with Charles Hayne. It's November 21st, 2019. That's insane. I'm holding in my hands the Blackmagic Ursa Mini Pro G2. That's gear cage this week. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But we've got three stories. The new power cage from Blindspot, which I think is kind of cool. We've got Sumo 19 finally getting its multi-ISO update. And the Bolt 4K Max is shipping all that. Gear Cage G2 and a really cool Hey Professor from Instagram all this week on the week in film tech. First story this week, Power Cage. You can see that, Power Cage. This is the Power Cage by a company called Blind Spot. It is a cage, or it's not a full cage, like the bottom part's a cage, right? It's the bottom rail of a cage with a bunch of quarter 20 mounts, which are threaded mounts for putting on your accessories, and then like a right-hand grip. I'm pretty sure you could figure a way to put like a top and a side on it. But the key word in there thing isn't cage it's power so the key deal here is that it is a battery built into the cage and it's a structural element right the way you think of this uh, motorcycle engine being a structural element like if i were to attach a top to this cage i would attach it to the top of the battery like the battery's part of the structure it's not bolted on to the structure it's inside the structure and inside the structure you've got power that power has two old school usb a outputs a usb c output an old style barrel connector and uh it's pretty cool. So here's why I think this is cool. I'm mixed on cages. There's some cages I think are totally worth it. Cages are one of those things. A lot of people are like, they buy a camera, they immediately buy a cage. I think a cage is great for solving the problem of I need to attach a lot of accessories. Once you get to the point where you're like, all right, I need my wireless transmitter, and I need my microphone, and I need my light, then you get a cage. But if you're out there and you don't need a microphone, you don't need a light, I see a lot of cameras where I'm like, that's a beautiful cage, and there's nothing on it. However... The power cage kind of argues for a single point of power for all of your units. So you can you can get one of these with a battery adapter for your camera. So the external power cage battery powers your camera. And like if you're watching it on YouTube, it powers your light. Uh, it's dimmed down. There's a little dimmer. I'll dim it all the way up. Dim it all the way down. This is actually a very bright light. I'm just shooting at F13 for whatever reason today. Um, so you've got a very uh, bright light built you know, it's just the blind spot crack light that's thrown on top of the power cage. So I could power that. I could power my wireless transmitter. I could power uh, a microphone. I could power all that stuff off this one battery. Now, the drawback to that is if that battery goes, that means your whole setup goes. But it's a pretty robust battery. It's way bigger than the battery inside your camera. And one of the big drawbacks with, you know, shooting with a DSLR in general is dealing with the hassle of uh, power maintenance, right? If I'm just out there and I'm using something like a small HD focus to uh, have a bigger image on my monitor, I need a separate battery for that. If I'm dealing with an external microphone, I will often need a separate battery for that. If I want a little light on my unit, which, like, gets some shade, but frankly, sometimes you're, like, doing a run-and-gun little dock-style thing, and having a little light on your camera is not the worst thing in the world. You need a separate battery for that, so all of a sudden you have four batteries that are dying at different times from each other. Whereas the power cage's whole design idea is it'll be one battery. Now, that one battery will die and the whole thing will go down. Frankly, if you're out there on a gun and the battery for your camera dies, your whole thing goes down. If the battery for your mic dies, the whole thing goes down. And better, it's one big, robust battery that's prepared to do all of it at once. If you were doing a lot of running gun work, I could even imagine seeing getting two batteries for the battery for the power cage. Like, one's charging while the other's working. I still think that would probably be a pretty cost-effective way to work. So, anyway, Blindspot's an interesting company. They're out of Scotland. They're very nice. Say hi to them if you ever see them at a trade show. They're super great people. They started with lights. They started with, like, uh, a light that was very bright. I think they were called Blindspot because they could blind people with it. 
and they make the crack light and they make a whole bunch of other cool stuff. Uh, this is Kickstarter stage right now. The caveat with always with Kickstarters is, you know, Kickstarter products not finished yet. However, I've been playing with a prototype unit and it's pretty cool. And they've done seven Kickstarters in the past and always shipped. That's no guarantee they'll ship this time. But, you know, just just be aware of it out there. Okay, up next in tech news this week. This is an interesting one. So Atomos, Australian company, they make monitor recorders. There's a right below frame. There's a Shogun Inferno monitor recorder recording this very podcast. Audio goes in one side, video goes in the other. It records straight to a ProRes file. Monitor recorders are a really great little thing. Uh, monitor recorders, you know, just a little bit of personal history about Charles Hain, are one of those things that initially I was like, what? I don't, I don't get. You know, sometimes you see a new tech tool and you're like, that, I understand that. I, I want that. Monitor recorders, I was initially like, I, I don't get it. I think it was in a period in my life where I was shooting everything on red at that point. And I was like, well, just shoot the internal red raw. Now that I'm at a phase in my career where I'm more academic and I'm working around smaller cameras more and stuff like that. Like, you know, my Fuji X-H1 puts out 4K over HDMI and I just plug it right in here and it goes straight to ProRes and I don't have to transcode and I can bring in separate audio and marry them together and, and monitor recorders are great. The other cool thing about monitor recorders is like, I bought the Shogun Inferno when I had an X-T2 and then I traded out the X-T2 for an X-H1 and I can still use the same monitor recorder. So as sensors get better, I can keep swapping out camera bodies without feeling like I have to swap out all of my accessories. So I've come around on monocorders. I don't think monocorders is the best name for them, but I've come around on them. I think they're cool. Atomos is obviously the really market-dominant people in that. All of their previous naming convention was like Shogun and Shogun Inferno, Sumo, and uh, Ninja. Their, their new monitors are the Neon, or the new monocorders are the Neon. They're moving to a different branding. But uh, the Sumo was sort of the last of their original monitors, 19-inch monitor, and it had a... It was announced in 2017 with a very cool feature. Uh, it's actually a feature cool enough that it makes me think I might want one now that it finally works. And that is independent ISO recording of asynchronous sources. So why is that so cool? Why is that so interesting? So 19-inch monitor, you can run four SDIs into the back of it, and then without genlocking the cameras. Genlocking refers to when we... Uh, usually it's involved cabling, although there's wireless solutions. You genlock the cameras together so that they're perfectly in sync. Genlock is very common in big multi-camera workflows. The Sumo 19 allows you to not genlock your cameras. So I could have like three Blackmagic broadcast cameras or whatever. Here's a mini broadcast. I can run SDI cables to the Sumo, and I can record all three channels into the Sumo at the same time. In fact, you can record five, four inputs, and then a fifth channel, which is like, an, what's the word they use for it? The edit channel, the scene, I, there's a term they use for it. Regardless, four clean ISOs, isolated channels, four clean ISOs, and then a mix. So, you know, I have my, the Sumo is a 19-inch screen. I can see four images at the same time. I've got my four images, and one of them is highlighted. That's the one I'm cutting to. And I can do a live cut watching on the Sumo. And it's recording all four of the channels clean. And it's recording my sort of, program channel of all my edits and it's recording an XML. So I can just bring that XML into Final Cut, Resolve, Premiere, and it's going to link up to those ISOs and I'll have, my, I'll have the edit I did on set, but then I can go in and I can change the edit. So I was a little late on a cut or I want to take out a piece. It's, it's an amazing workflow. It's super cool. However, it was announced in 2017. I remember being at that NAB and seeing it and being like, this is a really big monocorder, this 19-inch monocorder. Uh, but it just got rolled out today, or this week. Within the last week, the Sumo 19 has finally actually gotten the ability to record this. Like, 
feature. So that was like a marquee marketing feature for them when it first rolled out. I never really saw as many Sumo in the field as I thought I, I would. So I think that part of the problem was that they announced this feature and it didn't roll out to the field, which is a thing that happens sometimes. I think the real story here is it is incredibly hard to record ISOs in sync with XML stably without genlocking the cameras. I think that is actually a really complicated problem. It's the reason why genlock exists in the world in order to get the cameras all genlocked together makes it much easier to record them simultaneously, do an XML, do a record cut, line the footage up. Because, you know, if you think about it, you're, the point of Genlock is to make sure that, you know, if you're shooting 24 frames per second, those 24 frames are the exact 24 frames a second. They're not like one-eighth of a frame off from each other in time. And so basically what's having to happen within the Sumo is that, you know, they're like adjusting the signal in time. They're delaying it to line the signals all up because the signals have to be perfectly lined up in time in order to cut them together into program. And that's probably difficult from an engineering standpoint, I would imagine. Uh, clearly it is, because it didn't roll out until two years after the Sumo originally came out. But it's big news that they have it working. It's also a feature that's coming to the uh, the new Shogun 7. And I'm really excited. that That's a 7-inch monitor in which you could record four ISOs. That's crazy. You know, because at least a 19-inch, you know there's big hardware in there. But the Shogun 7 just came out this April at NAB, so it's two years newer technology. They haven't rolled the feature out there yet, so they're still figuring out how to make it work on the smaller platform. But it's a generally pretty cool thing. I think it's going to be really interesting for podcasters. Like, I might switch this to a multi-camera podcast, right? And then I got two cameras and maybe one zoomed in on the thing I'm playing with or whatever. So I think there's, like, interesting things there that are happening. And it's really impressive that they finally got this going. And I think that that is a sort of an interesting place to be for Atomos. So I'm excited. I'm tempted by the Sumo 19. I have to be honest. If I ever wanted to make this a multi-camera uh, YouTube podcast. All right. The last of the headlines this week is... The Teradek Bolt 4K Max is shipping. So what's the Teradek Bolt 4K Max? So Teradek is obviously very dominant in the wireless video space. It's these transmitter-receiver pairs, right? So you have to have a transmitter on your camera and a receiver on your monitor. And just did NAB this year, back in April, they rolled out the Bolt 4K. Bolt has always been a 1080 product. And frankly, 1080 is fine. Most even 4K and 8K cameras put out a 1080 signal. And depending upon what you're doing, that 1080 signal is probably going to be fine. But they had some interesting demos on the Bolt 4K. And frankly, Bolt's going to move to 4K anyway, just because all of these 8K and 16K cameras will be putting out 4K, and 4K will eventually become a standard on set. Right now, a lot of sets are still 1080 for everything on set, right? Like DM250 is still a very common monitor on sets, and that's a 1080 monitor. For a 24-inch image, which is a lot of what you're looking at on set, 1080 is great. However, did a job a couple summers ago on uh, with a 55-inch monitor, and it was awesome. And actually having a full 4K image transmitted to that 55-inch monitor would have been useful for focus. So that's what the Teradek Bolt 4K is all about. You have a camera that gives you 4K, which not all 4K, camera, 4K cameras do. Like the Red MX, 4K camera, but you could only get 1080 out of the SDI. There are newer Reds, you get 4K out of the SDI. So if you have 4K out of your camera and a 4K monitor, a big 4K monitor... A 4K 17-inch monitor, you're not really going to see a difference. But, like, you know, you get one of those new Atomos Neons or, like, you know, an LG OLED, for whatever reason, is on your set. Wireless 4K is pretty interesting. Um, but so why is the fact that this is shipping interesting? So when the Teradek ship, they announced this back in April, the 4K Bolt Max is actually the maximum power version. So, you know, Bolts usually come in some sort of, like, a 500 and an, or a 1,000 and a 3,000. The Bolt Max is, I believe, the 10,000-foot version. So it is the version of 
I'm doing a car commercial in which they're racing up a mountain and there's a picture car uh, and then there's a follow car and way back at base camp is the client and we're, we're going up and down the mountain and the client gets car sick. So they need a really beautiful image to see at the bottom of the mountain to give their feedback. That's what the Bolt 4K Max is really about. That's the target market for this product is you are looking at people who are going to be 10,000 feet away from their scene and yet still need a really high quality image. And there are jobs where that is really useful. Not every job. Although I, you know, I was talking to a DIT recently. who was talking about a job he was doing where base camp was at the bottom of the hill and the shoot was at the top of the hill. And you wanted a good link between the top and the bottom of the hill. And uh, that's where you look at those really long range wireless transmitters. The interesting thing here is that also in this, in their marketing push, they did a big push around the fact that even the 1080 signal is cleaner over the bolt. Which is interesting because it's Teradek cannibalizing their own bolt business. They're acknowledging that, like, wireless over the bolt it looked great, looked amazing. But, like, you got some image degradation. Even though it was 1080, you probably had a little bit of degradation. You, I never really minded it. It was very small. But now they're saying, hey, with the Bolt 4K, even if it's a 1080 workflow, even if your camera's putting out 1080 or you're on a 1080 monitor, you're still going to see better 1080 over a Bolt 4K than you do out of a Bolt because uh, the plain bolts were defaulted to 1080. And that's a really interesting marketing move. That is very much Teradek being willing to let some of their... I mean, frankly, it's a... It's a smart move because the people who can afford a Bolt 500 are going to stick with a Bolt 500. The people who can afford the Bolt 4K Max, this will help them make that decision for the Bolt 4K Max. So the people who can afford a Bolt 500 will stick with a Bolt 500. It's the one I have. <laughs> um, I couldn't afford a 4K Max, nor do I probably need it. But then if you're debating bumping up to the 4K Max and you're in the circle of people who can probably afford it, that is another effective thing to think, okay, well... As I slowly upgrade my whole workflow to 4K, maybe the Bolt's the smart first move. And then next year I do 4K monitors on set or something like that as I slowly transition over to 4K. So I think it's a pretty interesting move out of Teradek. And uh, like I said, on a big enough monitor, you can definitely see the benefits if you're, if you're doing follow focus over wireless uh, and having that full 4K resolution. your cage this you should see g2 on there next to my finger this is the black magic ursa mini pro generation 2 so obviously black magic is in this interesting space they make this ursa mini pro which like isn't very mini i know that there's a bigger ursa but i don't really see them anywhere i feel like they should just start calling this the ursa but we're gonna stay out of that uh my my biggest objection to Blackmagic is their naming software, their naming schemes for what's a mini and what's a micro and what's a mighty and that kind of thing. It's, yeah, it's my main objection with Blackmagic. Uh, the Ursa Mini Pro G2. So the Ursa Mini Pro has been out a few years now. Uh, it's sort of a dynamite camera. The thing we forget, because the basically the Blackmagic Pocket 4K and now the Blackmagic Pocket 6K are huge hits. Wonderful. Great. So happy. But what's interesting about it is it's that same frustration that leads us to a power cage. It's that same frustration that leads us to all these other places. You still need, first off, the electronics and the sensor are better in the Ursa Mini than they are in the Pocket 4K. So you're getting a wider dynamic range than you get in the Pocket 4K, which, and dynamic range is always more important to me than resolution. So you're getting a wider dynamic range, you're getting more shutter speed options. But beyond that, you're getting all of these, like, interface options that make it a 
easier unit to use in professional workflows. You're getting dual SDI outs. You're getting the ability to, you've got reference time code in, which you're going to be able to use in Genlock. You've got SDI in, you've got SDI out, you've got 12 volt power. You know, you have, you have the ability to mount a big old power plate on the back. You've got all these things going for you in Inertia Mini that you don't get out of the Blackmagic pocket. And now Blackmagic original or so many prices are dropping quite a bit because the G2 is out. So what are the primary features that make the G2 more interesting? So the G2 is actually one of those, Apple will do this every once in a while, where they're like, we're rolling out a new OS, but there's only like three new features. It's mostly stuff you won't notice. And uh, I forget what OS they did it, but it was like a whole bunch of under the hood stuff was made significantly better. Blackmagic talks a lot about with the G2 improvements in the speed with which the signal comes off of the sensor. And that has two big benefits. One big benefit is less rolling shutter. So rolling shutter is that jello-y look. When you whip pan back and forth, that's rolling shutter. And, you know, I've only been playing with the G2 for a couple weeks. I'm not doing a full review of it. This is just a gear cage. The rolling shutter is less. There's still rolling shutter there. It's not a global shutter camera, but it is a significant improvement, I think, over the G1. But then the other big thing you get out of it is you get higher frame rates. So if you take this down to HD mode, uh, you can get 300 frame per second. There's probably a clip playing over me right now. The 300 frame per second mode is actually the real thing that makes this an interesting camera for me. It's one of those things that I can't tell you the number of jobs I worked on where we were frustrated at, depending upon the kind of work you do, it's really nice having some really high frame rate. And 300 frames per second gets into that place where, like, if you're doing a fire effect or a stunt or anything like that, like, I could really see a lot of places that have, like, three or some minis really benefiting from upgrading one of them to a G2. So you've got that ultra slow-mo for your C-cam. I can also see a lot of people who do a lot of that kind of work. The 300 frame per second, I think, is the real interesting feature in this camera that sort of sets it apart from where it was previously in terms of a camera. I think the, the real interesting thing about the G2 is trying to take a temperature on how long the G2 is going to be the dominant player. So it came out the summer. I'm a little late to the gear cage on this one. But I think by summer 21, there'll be a G3 that's 6K. Because we've got the Pocket 6K now, so we know they have a 6K sensor that they like. And my guess is that we will be moving quite quickly to that space. I don't think there's going to be more than two years for the G2 to be the like newest and best. Which is fine. I mean, you don't always need the newest and best. One thing I do want to point out, because this particular, uh, the last two weeks I actually did my first lens swap on a Blackmagic, not on this one. Blackmagic, if you were listening, I would never like do a lens, I would never do a lens mount swap on a review unit, but uh, on another Blackmagic that uh, I had in house for a bit, I put on a peel mount, and it's actually an incredibly simple process to do the lens mount swap. It is something that some cameras has been tricky in, but this one it's been genuinely a pleasure. So just while I'm on gear cage, I wanted to point out it was actually really simple to do the lens swap. You just need to make sure you have a torque wrench. I'm holding it up if you're watching this on YouTube. And uh, this is a torque screwdriver, actually, not a torque wrench. Sorry. You just need to make sure you have a torque driver. And a torque driver will slip when you're twisting it, when you hit a certain amount of torque, so you don't over-torque the screws. If you've got a torque driver, it is incredibly simple to swap out the lens mounts. Okay, so the Blackmagic G2. I think it's going to be a dominant player for Blackmagic for the next two years. I mean, obviously, if you're buying one right now, I think it's a no-brainer to go G2. The big things you're getting is that, uh, to summarize... Less rolling shutter, more fun high-speed settings, especially that 300 frame per second in HD crop. Uh, you're also going to see a little bit less noise at the higher ISOs. Uh, not a ton less noise. It's not like you're going Panasonic Vericam territory in terms of like 5,000 ISO that's very usable. 
But again, if you're buying this camera, you're probably working with Blackmagic Resolve Studio, which has a noise corrector built in, or neat video, and the noise, you know, you pop up to a higher ISO on this camera, and you can really fix the noise quite easily in post. Doesn't work in a, I'm handing this over to client situation, but if it's all in your own workflow, I think the G2 is, I think it's a really respectable upgrade. It is not whiz-bang full of, it's not obsessed with, like, marketing terms. It's not like, we have 4K, we have HDR. It's not like, I mean, although the dynamic range does count for HDR. It's like 14, 15 stops. But uh, it's like a very, uh, it's like a calm, respectful, here are actual legit improvements in the camera upgrade. And I appreciate that. We have a question from a listener on Instagram. And that is, why don't my YouTube H.264 encodes look better? I'm using 2Pass VPR, and then you listed your data rate, and I forget what it was. And here's, I'm going to give you an answer. I'm going to give you an answer I got from Paul Corver, who runs Cinelicious, when I asked him the same question in 2007, 12 years ago. And that's because VBR, variable bitrate, does not look as good as CBR. And the way the pull-down menu is designed, constant bitrate. The way the pull-down menu is designed in almost every application is it's always designed like CBR is worst, one-pass VBR is better, two-pass VBR is best. But that's not actually correct. So let's think about it in terms of a budget for a second. If I have, let's say we're talking about like a 3,000 kilobit per second video or megabit per second video, which is a very normal, like 30,000 megabits a second is a thing we all do. That is like a, that is a very common setting, 30 to 35. I'm going to use 30 just for this example. If I'm using variable bit rate, think about this in terms of like your monthly financial budget. If I said, all right, you have $30,000 to get through this month, which is a lot of money. I mean, if you're burning $30,000 a month, but whatever, in this hypothetical example, are you going to spend $1,000 every day because it's a 30-day month? Or are you going to try and spend two to 300 every day in case a surprise comes up, your car breaks down or you break a leg or something. You're going to try and spend as little as possible. If you tell me you have a thousand dollars a month to spend, you have $30,000, a thousand dollars a day. You have $30,000 to get through this 30 day month. I'm not going to spend a thousand dollars every day because I'm going to be worried that the unexpected might happen and I won't have coverage. So I'm going to be trying to spend as little as possible every day because I'm worried that something's coming. That's VBR. That is the algorithm, the application, the program is saying to itself, all right, I have 30,000 megabits a second that I can use, but I'm going to try and spend as little as possible on every individual frame. I'm going to compress them as much as possible so that I can really save that data for later. If I do CBR, constant bitrate, that says it's the equivalent. It's very similar to saying, all right, you get $1,000 a day. For 30 days, that's your 30 megabits a second, $1,000 a day. So you just spend it because if you don't spend it, it's gone. So you get $1,000 every day. It doesn't roll over. You don't get to keep it. You just have that $1,000. You spend it every day. There's no reason you wouldn't. And data is like money in this respect. The more data available for the algorithm or application to make your image look nice, the less compression artifacts you're going to see, the nicer details you're going to see, the less macro blocking, the less banding, all of that. So constant bitrate, the software says to itself, all right, you're giving me 30,000 megabits a second or whatever. I'm just going to allocate that. Every second gets 30,000. Whereas variable bitrate, you're usually telling it like a peak and an average. And you're usually saying like peak at 35, average at 30 or whatever. And when you do that, 
because it's trying to keep it. It, it might dip down to 15,000 megabits a second because it's trying to make it small as possible to save itself room for later. You know, the accidents that might come up financially are you might break a leg or you, your car might break down. The accidents that might come up in an algorithm are if you're encoding the data, like right now, if it's encoded, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see it's just me against the pink background. I'm not wearing a hat today. Very simple. It doesn't need a lot of data. But if I start waving my hands all around, right, that's going to require a lot more data because every frame is changing quite a bit and you have a lot more information. Uh, the, the example you see a lot in YouTube videos is confetti. Confetti takes a lot of data to process, uh, I mean, to encode properly. So what you're really looking at is the difference between VBR and CBR. So what I always do is I look at whatever platform I'm doing. I just do CBR. I don't even bother with VBR. I think VBR is really a leftover of, like, the Blu-ray era where you're trying to fit these you know, four-hour movies into a single Blu-ray disc and VBR, uh, where you'll have, like, a dedicated compressionist who's going through and using VBR and then setting data rates for different parts of the movie and, and really, like, hand-touching the compression. That's what VBR is really about. For me, you know, I do a lot of shorter work. Even on features, CBR. I do tests at various CBR levels to determine what CBR level looks best for my whole pipeline. So, like, I have sort of a setting for HD movies. I have a setting for 4K movies that I think look good, looks good at that data rate on Vimeo. And, um, yeah, I mean, the, usually my data rates are a little higher than the recommended data rates by Vimeo and YouTube. Um, Vimeo and YouTube are both great, but their recommended encoding settings, I think, lean towards smaller files because they have to store all those files and it saves them server money, presumably. So I do CBR, I lean towards a slightly larger file, and I've had really good results on YouTube, Instagram, Vimeo, all of those things with uploading my videos. So that is a little trick I learned 12 years ago, and I've been sharing all over for 12 years, and now I'm happy to share with you. All right, so plugability time. First off, there's a discount on my book, my publisher, Routledge. If you go to Routledge.com and you look up either of my books, Color Grading 101 or Business and Entrepreneurship for Film, there's a discount. You just have to use the code ADS19 at checkout. And I think it's a 30% discount. It's crazy good. Um, although that cuts into my residuals, so I don't know how I'm promoting it. But it's, hey, it saves you guys money, and that warms my heart. I will be off next week for Thanksgiving, so I'll see you guys in two weeks. And, yeah, presumably there will be more Apple stuff throughout December as I try and get my hands on an XDR monitor. In the meantime, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Charles Hain, C-H-A-R-L-E-S-H-A-I-N-E. Sign up for the mailing list and you'll get a little reminder whenever there's a new episode with links to stuff I talk about. It's been another week in the week in film tech. 